The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Absurd Psychology, straight answers without all the bull. Your host is Dr. Gary Bell. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. Uh, We have a bright and optimistic program today. It's called Suicide, Death, and Grieving, The Art of Living Miserably. Now, uh, this show is actually very insightful and very helpful because I will tell you that all these elements are things, suicide, death, grieving, these are things that we all have to face. We have to face our own, uh, you know, deal thinking about our own life, and then we have to face the loved ones in our life that may pass before us. And uh, tragically or not tragically, this is a very difficult topic, but we all need to really get down to business and understand it. And that's why I wanted to put this show together. Now, here's a quote that a friend of mine stopped smoking, overeating, drinking alcohol, chasing women all the the same time. And he had a nice funeral. (laughs) All right, here's here's some facts about suicide. Now, I've Unfortunately, and fortunately, I, I think it's actually a noble thing. I have uh, dealt with several people that have been suicidal throughout the course of my profession. I've had suicide in my family, very distant. Uh, my my father's sister, my aunt, uh, committed suicide. I don't think she did it on purpose. She overdosed on uh, cold medication, but. Suicide is something that all of us look at and go, wow, what's going on? You know, even the most recent uh, suicide, Robin Williams, uh, it just draws a lot of questions in the mind. And the question that is the biggest is why? Why, why, why? And I will tell you something, that that is one of the most dangerous questions to ask yourself about someone else committing suicide. Because the minute that you decide on the why, you've actually accepted the outcome You may not like it, but you've also integrated that into your own psychology. And so what happens is there's a 65% chance in families that have suicide that actually someone within that family will do the same thing or that network of friends around that person. And that is because they answer the question why. That is not a question for us to answer. That is a question within the individual that does suicide. And it's a very challenging thing to talk to people that are suicidal and to even recognize those signals of someone that is suicidal. So we're going to kind of step through that very convoluted world and uh, very private world that people have about suicide. Now, here's here's the true facts. In the United States alone, there is over 865 
1,000 attempts of suicide in the United States. Now, of those suicides, between 33 to 34,000 actually succeed. Most of those people that actually succeed are first-timers. That means that they were serious about it and that they went ahead and did it. And they had a plan, and they went through with it. Uh, They had the intent, and they made a decision, and they went all the way with it. There's a lot of people that will feign suicide, and that is to use suicide to get attention or use the talking about suicide to get attention or the idea of like cutters. A lot of people cut, uh, and that releases uh, endorphins and makes them feel better for a temporary time, and that's the very sad thing is they get addicted to that feeling because now they have physical pain to focus on rather than their mental pain. People don't understand the difference, that there is such thing as mental pain. And it can be overwhelming. And, uh, you know, physical pain is a distraction to those with mental pain. Therefore, physical pain can become addictive. And uh, so we always have to watch. When anyone is talking suicide, when anyone is threatening suicide, we really got to take it serious. And that's something, you know, you can call the police. They have what are called 5150 evaluators. They'll come and evaluate the person to see if they believe they're suicidal. The other thing is you want to get them to the emergency room as quick as possible of the mental health facility closest to you, if not the hospital closest to you. It is always, always important that when someone is talking suicide and they have the intention and the method of committing suicide that they're talking about, that means they've really got themselves ingrained in that thought process and it's not leaving them. That has to be talked through That is something that you have to work through. And it's really a professional needs to be in front of that person if possible. Maybe with the family support system, maybe with the friends, maybe with everybody possible in their life. But really you want to have a professional guiding you through that process. Now, each suicide changes at least six other people's lives. At least six other people's lives, depending on how big a life that person lived. March... April and May are the most popular months of suicide. And there's also 79% of all suicides are first time, but 50%, 50% are with firearms. Firearms are used most commonly. And so anyone that has firearms around their home, around their presence, and they're talking suicide, It's a very good idea to get those things taken away, moved out of the house, taken to grandma grandpa's house, wherever you can put them, put them away, take them away from the person that is talking suicide. That is not something you want to have in front of them. Of course, there's other methods of suicide. There's hanging, there's cutting, there's overdose. Those are all very popular methods, but firearms by far and above all other methods is the main one. Now, what... Why do people do this thing? And it's a manic act. You know, suicide is absolutely a manic act. Manic means it's diagnosably a mental disorder. That means they're in a state of depression or they're in a bipolar state that is very, very dangerous. Anybody that's in that place has some bit of mania to their life. That means they have a hint of depression that is overwhelming. And depression goes in... And it's, it's kind of like the ocean, you know, it, 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 some days it's calm 
Other days, it's really deep. There's storms. You know, it's kind of like that. Depression can run its course. Uh, but, you know, there's days that are, it's not that, that, that bad. Well, these days, these suicidal days are horrible days. Now, here's the deal. If you can imagine yourself, if you've ever had like a, a, a migraine headache or hurt your back or done something that was just overwhelmingly physically painful and you just could barely not even take it, you just couldn't, you, when you're in that state of pain, you end up focusing only on the pain and then you start looking at your life saying, gosh, I can't even pick up a quarter. You know, I can't even do this. I can't even drive my car. Oh, my gosh, my life is going to change. My life is horrible. Look, I'm, I'm handicapped now by this pain. It's, it's so overwhelming. You don't think about your wife, your children, your husband, your grandma, grandpa. You don't think about your loved ones. All you think about when you're in that state of pain is yourself and the pain. It becomes your living partner all the time. And that's where people disconnect from other people. And that's where the, sen- the, the sense of needing suicide comes in because they're in such a state they see no other outcome and they just go there because they see that as I, that's the one thing that's going to get me out of pain. So it's pain management. Suicide, dealing with suicide is pain management. And pain management is a very, very difficult process. And it's something that has to be delicately worked with by a professional with someone that's in that state. Because this pain, once again, is mental. It is mental pain. You know, they stop thinking about everyone. They stop thinking about the impact on their kids. They stop thinking about how their life means things to other people, how it's going to change other people. They don't even think about the idea of them processing the why of their suicide. They just do it. They just do it, and that's how they go. And um, they don't see any value in their life at that point. The decision to commit suicide actually creates a euphoria. It's, okay, finally, there's a resolution, and that pain will no longer hurt me. And it's, it's like they're, they're giving themselves, and I'm trying to get you in the psyche of people that are suicidal. It's like they're going to be giving a gift to themselves, finally. And they, they're full of self-loathing about themselves because they feel like they're a burden to the rest of the world. They feel hopeless. They feel isolated. And they see no other option that they can live with. And the other thing that's chemically going on in the brain is there's a huge lack of what's called serotonin. Serotonin is like the vehicles that ride our neurological highways. We need lots of vehicles to keep the brain active. When you don't have a lot of vehicles, there's only certain parts of the brain that are going to function, and that's usually just the brain stem, which is where your primal emotions are. That's not helpful. You need vehicles to get on those highways. So upping uh, the uh, serotonin level is very, very important. There is a, uh, an actual uh, supplement called HTP5 that actually has serotonin in it, and it's a very strong uh, and helpful, especially with people that are in a suicidal state. It's not going to fix everything, but it gives us the opportunity to have a little bit more clear thinking. Um, and the other problem is with that supplement is it's going to go in the brain like a shotgun. It's not going to go to all the areas it's supposed to go to. It just kind of goes into the brain. So that means that most of it's not going to work, but some of it helps. It's always helpful to have more serotonin. 
They want to seek an end to conscious living. So how this is how to recognize suicidal ideation and intention. The person usually talks about suicide, seeking uh, lethal means, preoccupation with death. They have no hope for the future. They, they may start, uh, you know, getting their affairs in order. They may start saying goodbye to people. They may start withdrawing from others. They may have self-destructive behavior, maybe as simple as, you know, their diet, just suddenly the huge weight gain or enjoying things they used to not enjoy. Or maybe if they're alcoholics starting to drink, um, they go into that uh, sense of calm and making peace with life. They don't have to take care of themselves anymore. They don't have to do anything anymore, but they want to make sure to leave everybody on a good note. And that can be a huge indicator that if their shift has gone from really, really depressed and really isolated and now suddenly they're giving you things that are valuable to them, they're happy, uh, they're peaceful, and you're thinking, oh, they're fine, that actually can be a very strong indicator that that person is in a state of settling on suicide. Some people live a suicidal lifestyle. And those people are not attributed in the 865,000 attempts that I've talked about. The truth is that people that smoke, people that take uh, illegal drugs, people that do rule-breaking at their occupation, drinking alcohol to excess, taking unnecessary chances, safe, unsafe sex, spending, gambling, fighting, on and on and on. Those are actually suicidal lifestyles. That means a person is committing suicide, but they're doing it without committing suicide. They're doing it by their lifestyle. So it's kind of like watching someone just wind down until they eventually kill themselves. Alcoholism itself is suicide. It is a suicidal act. A person that is alcoholic is suicidal. A person that takes drugs as a lifestyle is suicidal because they are destroying their ability to think. They're deadening their brain to the point that they don't have to think anymore and they're just living on through that. You know, people that don't take care of themselves, people that don't exercise, this that is a suicidal lifestyle. Unsafe sex, being with people that you don't know what in the world they've done and you may catch them. They don't care. They just throw it out the door. People that do that, that is a suicidal lifestyle, believe it or not. And so, you know, a lot of people are more self-destructive than you think. And you've really got to keep an eye on those folks because that in itself has to be addressed. It doesn't have to be addressed as you're suicidal. But, you know, bringing up the point, and I've done this countless times in counseling to people that have self-destructive behaviors, self-destructive habits. I've just let them know, hey, man, do you realize what you're doing? Do you really, really get it? You're, you're killing yourself. You're just doing that. You're doing it, but you're not telling anybody. You're doing it through your actions. And it's important to confront people like that because they don't see it that way. Also, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death, four times more higher in men and women than women. But women have ideation, which is the thought of suicide more frequently. They just don't go to the intention as frequently. Um, eight, uh, 45 to 64 years is the most popular time, 45 to 64, especially if health begins to wane. Uh, there's lots of divorce. There's financial struggles. 45 to 64 tends to be the 
biggest time. Now, what kind of population? White, American Indian, Alaskan, and Asian. Those are the most popular ones. People that are 85 or older also have a very high tendency towards suicide, second highest in the country. And uh, 25 to 44, 15.1. And those people are usually truly diagnosably bipolar, schizophrenic, or manic depressed. Uh, 14.9 is 65 to 84. And 10.5% of the population is 15 to 24. So, you know, the biggest thing to look at, I say, is teenagers and old people. Teenagers and old people are a very high factor. Or people that have lots of financial struggles in midlife and their career seems to be spinning. Those are something that that, uh, we need to look at. We're going to talk about how to talk to somebody that's suicidal. We're going to take a quick break. I hope we come back and we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about grieving and we'll move on. Come right back to Absurd Psychology. It's Dr. Gary Beck. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary Bell or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. So, got a pen? 
The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net, or you can just click on the Email Host button on the Voice America page. Now, back to Absurd Psychology. Welcome back to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. We're talking about suicide, death, and grieving. Now, what we're going to do is talk about, at this segment, how to talk to someone who is suicidal. The first thing you wanted to understand is not to get in front of them and argue about their suicide. You do not want to challenge them. Don't want to throw up your family, the bright side, guilt and shame of what's going to happen if you kill yourself. That, that guilt and shame, they're already depressed. Why are you going to contribute even more by giving them guilt and shame? Acting shocked when someone talks about suicide is not a good idea. Lecture them on life, not a good idea. Telling them how wrong suicide is or get religious on them. That is never, ever a good idea with someone that's suicidal. They're not really seeking your permission. They're just wanting to have a discussion about it. Or if you're going to bring it up with them, then you want to simply discuss it. But you need to be relaxed and you need to be in a state of mind that is calm. You want to promise, don't want to promise confidentiality uh, to someone that is suicidal. You're going to have to talk to other people and let them know you're not going to sit there with the information. So promising confidentiality, I'm going to keep this to myself. I'll never tell anybody. Not a good idea. That's a bad promise because this person may slip even deeper and deeper and deeper into that suicidal pocket. Also, you want to seek support immediately. And if you don't know what to do, take them to the mental health facility, the hospital, and let the people in the emergency room evaluate and work with them. Call the police. Do something. Call somebody that loves or cares about them. Do whatever you can. You want to surround the person and let them know how much they're loved, but you don't want to get into some panic. You don't want to get some crazy person in front no, don't do this, and then crying and all that. That's, that's never a good idea. All those dramatics just make them feel worse. Trying to fix their problems, never a good idea. Not with a suicidal person. If they have problems and they're going to kill themselves because they have problems, they're going to have more problems later in life. So trying to solve this one problem... I'm sorry, that means you're, they're not learning that in life we have to solve our problems. That's part of life. So fixing their problem, not going to help, not always going to help. Now, now, everything I'm saying here is not 100% guarantee. Obviously, life is very subjective. But I'm trying to give you some tips of how not to talk to somebody that is suicidal. The other is a lot of people get selfish and stupid and start blaming themselves. You're doing this because I did this to you. That is the most egotistical thing in the world. You do not control how other people feel. You do not control, once again, how another person feels. They do that all on their own. Trying to say, if someone says, you make me feel, I don't make you feel crap. You did that all on your own. Now, how to talk to someone who is suicidal? First of all, you want to express concern about them. You want to tell them objectively what you're seeing in them and what's different. You want to let them know that you're here. I'm here for you, man. I'm here. Let's talk. Let's just talk. Let them know that you believe in them, that they are a good person. Remind them of all the people in their life that they have touched, memories that have affected other people's lives, and how all of that could continue if they did not do this act. You want to 
tell them how suicide may lead to more suicides in their family for generations to come. That people are always going to go to the why with it, and it's just going to lead them to that dark, dark place. You know, we all uh, in a family are leaked genetically. And to think that if one person is depressed, obviously there's going to be more people in the family that are depressed and possibly manic depressed, especially the children of a suicidal person. So, you know, giving them the idea that, hey, I'm just giving you the facts, man, this, you know, 60, 65% of people that commit suicide, someone else commits suicide after because they can't figure out why you did it. You want to remind them of who they are is not run by their emotions, that their emotions actually do not run their life. Emotions come and go. Emotions are not meant to be take, you know, to take action on. If you allow your thoughts to run your life, you're going to have a healthy life. If I know in the morning I got to get up and go to work and I don't emote over going to work, I'm going to actually function, go to work and have a good day. You know, ask them if they want suicide to be their legacy. Do you want everybody to talk about your life in the memory that, oh, that's the guy that committed suicide? Is that really the way you want to end it? Because the suicide will, will uh, preempt everything else you've done in your life to the mass majority of people that are involved in your life. And it's very important to be yourself and let them know that they're not alone. Your, your, your voice needs to be calm. Your demeanor needs to be calm. Even if you're freaking out inside, you really need to put your best best foot forward and try to be as calm as possible and offer them as much hope that this is just an emotional place you're in and it's going to change and you've been there before and it will change. You need to place someone in a mental health facility if they are suicidal and they do what's called a three to seven or 21 day hold. The person must, must, uh, must, not only have ideation of suicide, but a plan and the means to do it. Otherwise, they usually will not take that person. And a lot of people that are suicidal will talk the hospital out of keeping them, just say, I'm not suicidal, I, I was just saying that. And then they get out and they sometimes do it again. So you want to surround somebody that is suicidal with other people. You don't want to leave them by them, themselves. Here's the other thing about your communication with a suicidal person is be empathetic. Don't be judgmental. Be accepting. They're talking, and that's important. And as long as you're talking, there's hope. And you want to ask them directly about their suicide and what's, what's driving it. So that's a segment basically on suicide. And I know it's a depressing topic, but it's one that's very important, and it's a very pervasive in today's life. You know, there's a lot of things that go on in our life. It's very busy, and some people get caught up in the problems and don't get caught up in the opportunities Every failure is an opportunity. All right. Now, why do people grieve? Grieving. Well, first of all, the people that grieve the longest are usually people that are depressed. Uh, People that are depressed spend a lot of time with negative predictions, negative outcomes. And any time that you're grieving means change has suddenly happened in your life and you may or may not be ready for it. Somebody has left your life that is very important. Somebody has changed in your life, and that's very important. And suddenly you go into the spiral of a grieving process. And depression, if you are depressed, doesn't help. It elongates it. So folks that are depressed generally will suffer depression or suffer grieving a lot longer than the average person. Grieving usually can take anywhere from, you know, three weeks to to four years and sometimes longer. 
And the deal is you've got to welcome it. You can't fight grieving. You've got to allow it to happen. You, it, it sometimes takes over. You know, I've, no, I, I, you know, I have to tell you, quite frankly, you know, I, I lost my mom and my stepfather, um, geez, 13 years ago in a plane crash. They died in their private plane. And when that happened, I had to go and identify them and do all that stuff. But the bottom line was it, it took a long time to go through that process. It took several months, and, and I lived it. And I can tell you it's a hard thing, but I didn't fight it. I let it happen. I let it move through me. I let it run its course. I, I warned everybody around me, hey, you know, I may start crying. Something may trigger me. I just I can't help it. I'm going through this, and I just want you to know. I welcomed it. And by doing that, it processed out, and it became actually extremely constructive and helpful. Now, why grieving? It's a sense of emptiness and regrets. It's a loss of something or someone who had value to us. It's the end of memories. It's the end of memories, whether it's with an object or with a person. And that can be extremely devastating to someone. Also, we begin to evaluate the meaning of life. And that is a question that people struggle with over and over and over again. And I've brought this up a, a gazillion times in this program, but the meaning of life to me is existing in the moment, being right here with you, talking to you right now at this very moment and connecting with you is the meaning of my life. The next moment is going to be completely different, but I'm going to be there for that moment too. You know, the the, the grieving process also has a sense of facing our own fate and vulnerability to life. And then we have the evaluation of what could I have done to know this was going to happen Or if I would have done this, I would have stopped it. You know, and the thing about grieving is it's going to take forever if the grieving is about you and not about what you have lost. If it is about you, which most grieving is, and people are very self-centered, they're going to elongate that grieving process. You know, the other thing about grieving, and people don't talk about this much, but when you lose someone that you love, like a parent or somebody that had a fairly good life and maybe had money and possessions and they start dispersing those possessions through a will or not through a will, through a person, what basically happens is all your support system within your family suddenly starts to get weird and strange because, well, I should have gotten that or I should have gotten this money or I should have this. You did that wrong. You're not fair. You've always been selfish. It brings out a lot of childhood issues especially if it's a parent and then people start battling each other and the very support system that you need the most at that moment starts to dissipate your family. And that can be a horrible, horrible process uh, for people to go through. It's very important for people when they focus through the grieving process, if, if they can be mature enough to accept the fact, especially if there is a will, that that's the way it was meant to be and let it go, you know, to, to live for whatever your parents are going to leave you is about the dumbest thing you could possibly do in this life. You're not going to have a life. But a lot of people are so uh, stagnant in their own existence, so indecisive, so unable to tap into a passion in their life, they'll just live for their parents to die so they can gain some income. And that's very sad to see. But this grieving process can get really weird when you've got people that are greedy and and it really strains a family. Now, what is grieving? It's denial and isolation. It is anger. 
that these are stages. Denial, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. It's almost, it's, it's, it's like they're still alive. And then we tend to start isolating and then we get angry. And then we start bargaining. And then we go in through a depression. And then hopefully at the end, and this is called the cycle of grieving, we arrive at acceptance. And acceptance is peace. And acceptance is acceptance that life is now going to be a new a new, different life, a change. You know, if you think about emotions, and this is very important, they're like a wave. Every emotion neurologically in the brain can only last three minutes. Three minutes, that's it. The problem is, is that people, when they feel something that's strong, they go, well, why do I feel that way? Well, I feel that way because I've lost this person, uh, because my life is like this, because my finances are like this, because my children think this of me. Well, my spouse doesn't respect me. Blah, blah, blah. And we start stacking ideas and thoughts on an emotion. Emotions are meant to be felt. They're not meant to be logically deduced. If you're going to be a logical, controlling person trying to control an emotion, you're going to create emotional tidal waves by analyzing your emotions because every time you have a thought about why do I feel this way, you're adding three more minutes to that emotion. But the truth is, if you can just feel an emotion, like, okay, I'm feeling sad, we'll feel sad. Feel sad, and your brain can't sustain the energy if you don't have another thought to, to, to fire it up, and basically the emotion will slap on the shore and roll away. That is called emotional intelligence. That's called managing your emotions. Neurologically, once again, the brain cannot sustain an emotion longer than three minutes unless you start analyzing your emotion. So when we're in the grieving process, it's so important to just allow ourselves to feel. Allow ourselves to feel, move through it, let the wave hit the shore, and then move on. That's it. Take a pause. Pull off the road, stop a meeting, stop working on something, and let yourself feel. Now, also, there is a wonderful YouTube uh, thing on grieving, the process of grieving, and it's called A Giraffe in Quicksand. And it's one of the funniest, strangest little cartoons, and it's about four to five minutes long, but it really gets to the grieving process, and it really identifies it extremely well. It's called The Giraffe in Quicksand, and I believe it's on the YouTube, and it's really funny to watch. Now, what can cause grieving? Well, death, illness, and you know, it's a deal about uh, like people with cancer and people that have diabetes that are steadily not taking care of it, people that, that have very... Uh, bad potential outcomes that are diagnosed with some chronic or life-threatening illness, oftentimes people will begin the grieving process while that person is healing or trying to heal. And the worst thing you could possibly do is grieve while a person is going through a healing process. He, you know, trying to grieve someone when they're <laughs> healing is it's horrible to watch. It's it's very negative situation. And getting those people that are grieving, that are already predicting a negative outcome, getting them away from that person trying to heal or battle cancer, get them out of their life. Get them away as far as possible because they're not going to help them. So, you know, it's sad, but a lot of folks that have long illnesses that are chronic and lead to death end up watching everybody mourn their death before they die. And then when they die, people don't mourn as long because they've already grieved. They've already grieved it. Also, loss of a job, loss of income, loss of a relationship can be devastating to people. 
any kind of major change in people's life can cause the grieving process. You know, anything that, that degrades our uh, self-esteem and how we view ourselves or how we think other people view us can be extremely devastating to people and trigger that grieving process. And they have a right to go through it. Everyone has a right to grieve. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the positive idea of death. <laughs> so come back to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary Bell or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. So, got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net, or you can just click on the Email Host button on the Voice America page. Now, back to Absurd Psychology. Welcome back to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. We're going to talk about the... uh optimistic topic of death now what is death you know death is very simple it's the end of life but the bottom line is uh death is a great opportunity for those that survive to look back on the memories of someone's life and to rejoice death is just the last thing that happens to you it's not your life it's not who you are 
And as a matter of fact, it is the most personal moment in your life. You know, to watch someone die is like watching someone go to the bathroom, to tell you the truth. You know, it's, it's not a moment that is meant for everybody else. It is that person's last moment. It's their moment. It's not your moment. And to have people surrounded, unless they want to be surrounded by loved ones, to be watching them die, it's a very sad thing. And I, I'm not so sure it's, it's a healthy thing. De- death is personal. It's a personal event. It's between your beliefs and yourself, your soul and yourself. It, it's a moment that is yours. And, and it's the last moment of your life, and it's sure as heck the last thing. You know, I do not wake up every day wanting to be remembered for how I die. How I die is how I die. I cannot help that. Everybody's going to die. Everything in this universe dies someday. The fact is, is that I want to be remembered for my life. I want to be remembered for who I touch, the people that I've helped, the people that have meant something to me, the memories I've had with my children, the memories I've had with my wife, memories with my family and my friends. That is life. And that is what I live for. I do not live for how I die. But so many people will spend all this time thinking about how someone died or that someone died. And they can go on for years beating that drum. And I will tell you, I think that's just simply retarded. Death is the last moment of your life. It's not your life. It's not who you are. It's not why you wake up. It is just the last moment of your life, and that's it. You have lots of other moments that lead up to to, to, to your death. Even if it's a child, they still have loads of memories. It may be just little things, but my goodness, why would we want to focus on death? Our job when someone dies is to celebrate their life. You know, I, I told you earlier that uh, my mom, when she died in a plane crash, she, she left me a little bit of money. And when she did that, I decided to do a couple of things that she did in her life and one thing that she wanted me to do. And that was to become a doctor. She wanted me to become a doctor. I did not want to become a medical doctor. My, my stepfather was a pathologist. I don't know if you know what that is, but they carve up dead people. Um, not the most positive uh, way to grow up. <laughs> to to uh, sit down and eat dinner with somebody that's been car- carving up dead bodies all day and analyzing their innards. That that wasn't exactly the funnest thing. <laughs> and he wasn't exactly the funnest guy, but he was a good person. He really was. Um, bottom line, though, is is that my mom wanted me to be a doctor. She told me that several times. And so I had already become a therapist, and I did not need to become a doctor, but I did decide to do it, and I did it for her. And by doing that for her, I gave myself a gift. My mom lives on through me because she changed my life by allowing myself to do something for her. I actually have grown my life enormously. That doctorate has paid for itself over and over and over in memories, in finances, in stability, in, in the type of people that I have to interact with and the type of people I can help, the type of work I can do, it has paid huge dividends. And that's only because my mom wanted that for me and I took that as a gift back to her. She changed my life. That changed, her death changed my life in a very positive way. Um, the other thing was travel. I had not traveled very much, and I, my mom saw the world with my stepfather. They saw the world, and I always wanted to see the world, but I never really fascinated myself with it. But I began 
to focus on societies and people and cultures and, and history. And I did a whole lot of reading. And, and any time that I travel, I read a whole lot about where I'm going. So I know where I'm going. I know what's been there before me. And I know why things are there and what they're all about. That interest that, that I take in travel is a part of my life. And so once again, my mom lives through me. I've gone to many places that she had been in her life. And I feel like I carry her with me. And so once again, death does not have to be a negative. It can be a positive. The fact is, in my mind, my mom is always there for me. So if, if, if we were going to focus on death, let's focus on what that person wanted for us and make changes in our life. So now, I say, you know, we are souls, and I've said this countless times, we are souls living a human life. Our life is what's called experiential. That means we have to experience it many times to understand it and to make choices. And we make a lot of mistakes because we have what's called an experiential lifestyle. If we do not practice an experiential lifestyle, meaning we take chances and do things that we have never done before, we spend a week saying yes to everything that comes our way that's good for our life, we, we, we go ahead and take a chance. And we cha- make changes and we, we develop courage and we develop a taste for life. And the fact is, it's very important to do that. And so when I say we're a soul living a human life, that means we have a soul and we have this human life. Many people just live a human life. They're mediocre. They just do what they're supposed to do, what they think they're supposed to do. I'm, you know, my, my values, my expectations of my family are this. The history of my family is this, so this is what I do. This is how I treat my children. This is how I act. This is, you know, and it's all very canned, and it's very basic, and it's very simple, and it's very mediocre. But the problem is there's this soul there that has a reason to be here, and it has a journey too. And you need to match your soul's journey with your human life. And that is called a life of passion. That is called a purposeful life. And that's what all of us need to have. But to do that, to find out what we're passionate about, we need to sample. We need to go out into the world and make changes, do things differently than we've done before. Be courageous. Step out on a limb. You know, doing this show right here was very strange and very hard for me to put together, but it's very meaningful to me, not only to be touching your life, but this thing will move on beyond my life. That means my children someday will be able to listen to this very program, and I will be able to touch their life after I'm gone. That, to me, is important. That is a soul living a human life. And we need to continue to do that to feel alive. A lot of people just phone their life in. You know, all the things we have in this life, like possessions, money, house, cars, they, ha- they have a very short life. They do not live on beyond us very often, especially the way they build houses these days. Bottom line is, you know, Your possessions are not going to outlive your memories. You want your memories to outlive your possessions. So that when your family, when you die, everybody's not grabbing at whatever you had left, but they're grabbing at memories and sharing those with each other. That is what we want when we see death. And whenever I work with people that have tragic death in their life, I remind them of that. Don't focus on the money. Don't focus on, focus on the memories and share those with each other and be there and develop a support system with each other. Okay. 
meaning of life. And I brought this up, but, you know, Viktor Frankl uh, wrote an incredible book about the meaning of life, and it's about uh, existentialism. And it's called Man's Search for Meaning is what the book, and it's about living in the now. That is, he lived in a concentration camp. He had His family was killed. Everybody was taken away, his children, his wife, his book that he wrote, everything was taken away. And he spent three years, he was a medical doctor, he spent three years in a concentration camp, in several concentration camps, as a doctor to Jewish people in the camp, and he was Jewish. Instead of worrying about how I'm going to be killed, how this patient is going to be killed, he focused on every single moment he had with those individuals. When he was with a patient, he stayed with them. He stayed fully present. And by doing that, he discovered this is the one thing that no one in this life can take away from me. No one, not the Nazis, no one can take this moment from my life. That was extremely important to him. People could be dying in the next moment. But he couldn't control that. But he could have memories. And those memories is what he he focused on. And that's what he embellished in existentialism, which was created long before he was uh, back in the the 1700s. But the deal is that that philosophy got him through that concentration camp. And I can tell you it will get you through life. And it is a Christian or a religious philosophy. Philosophy, meaning it, it bodes well for anybody of any religion, it works well with you and with that, with that faith. So, ask yourself, when is the last time that you were fully available to your child, to a loved one, to a friend, to your, to your spouse? When were you not in your head? When were you not sitting there just thinking and thinking and ruminating about your problems and your life and your jobs and your finances and all these things. Have you ever really fully been just sitting there with the person you're with and giving them yourself and giving them your full attention? Have you ever wondered what life would be like like that? Can you sustain that? And that is an exercise that every individual should practice in their life is to be fully present in the moment with every single person, especially the people that depend on you. You know, we, we, we crave those moments like sports. People love to have those moments in sports when, you know, the game is tied and somebody's at bat and, or whatever, and somebody's the big play is about to happen. That's people will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the best seats to be in those places when they can actually have those kind of moments with the people they are sitting with that they love and they care about. They don't have to pay thousands of dollars to be there for your wife or your your partner. You want to be there and you want to be present. And we crave that in this life, but we want to make, you know, we want to make like sports be our outlet. Sports, people that love sports should be loving life. They could have a lot more of life if they'd be more fully present and put that same energy into their relationships. So here's some facts about death you may not know. On the average, right-handed people live nine years longer than their counterparts. I'm left-handed. When a person dies, hearing is usually the last sense to go. The first is sight. The second is taste. Third is smell, and then touch, and then hearing. So hearing in death is usually the last sense to go. Second to the last is touch, and the third to last is smell. Okay, 
In the U.S., approximately three, uh, 300,000 deaths a year are attributed to obesity. Now, <laughs> here's an interesting story. Napoleon killed over 1,000 Turkish people with a cough. In 1799, he was deciding whether or not to release 1,200 Turkish prisoners. After he coughed, he said, Masakre, masakre tof. And it, what it, that means is, my darn cough. And his officers thought he was saying, Masakris tur, which means kill them all. <laughs> and so it's not funny, but it's very strange that his soldiers killed 1,200 people because they misinterpreted what he said when he was coughing. 82% of all fatal dog attacks in the U.S. happen with pit bulls. The other 17% come from other dogs or the dogs of mother-in-laws. All right, now, how different religions view death? Christian, there's the idea of heaven, hell, purgatory, mostly Catholics believe in that. Buddhism, bardos. 49 days where the spirit goes through a 49-day process and either enters nirvana and disappears or returns to the earth for rebirth. And the ultimate goal of life is to escape the cycle of death and rebirth. So that means that the life needs to be a spiritual life. And once again, it's a 49-day process that the spirit goes through after death and it either enters nirvana or disapp- and, and disappears or returns to the earth. Judaism, primarily focused on life and the here and now. It leaves a lot of room for personal opinion on death. Some believe that religious souls go to a place similar to heaven or reincarnate through many lifetimes or await the Messiah when they will be resurrected. Some believe that the souls of the wicked are tormented by demons of their own creation or destroyed at death. Me, personally, I believe we live in hell. (laughs) I believe that our life today is hell. (laughs) And whatever after is probably better sometimes than what we have today. (laughs) With Islam, death is the complete end of physical life and the beginning of a period of rest until the day of resurrection, until Allah judges the living and the dead. Hinduism. The Atman, an eternal, changeless core, the soul, deep self, viewed as being identical with changing the Brahma. Reincarnation is an unhappy karma. Life in this world means suffering. And uh, once the deep self reaches Moksha, then the soul is liberated to join the cosmic Brahma. Okay. The atheist, agnostic, you're just dead. And spiritualism, all people and animals that accept and give love continue to live after death. Okay, that's our show. I want to thank everyone for listening. You can contact me at drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Remember, always go to, uh, to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. That's Yogi Berra. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.